This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So someone asked me once, what is the hardest thing for you about following Jesus? And uh, as a follower of Christ for the last 40 plus years, that question is surprisingly easy to answer. So is it the external pressure of being conformed to a culture and persecution? No, that's not the hardest thing, although that can be really hard. Is it the internal pressure, the temptations to sin? That's a really close second. But the hardest thing is simply this, to believe that the good news of Jesus is really good, as good as Jesus says it is, and that it's for me and that it's for the whole world. That is the hardest thing for me to believe week in and week out. So in Luke chapter 2, the angels show up and they sing this song to the shepherds and they say this will be the birth of Jesus, his coming into the world is going to be good news of great joy for all the nations of the earth. This splendidly good news. And it is for you. Now, for a pastor of 27 years, I know I'm not alone. And that may be, maybe not your biggest struggle, but I bet it's in your top two or three. That's why I love the story in the Gospel of Luke of this man named Zechariah. And we meet a man who's struggling to enter into this incredible good news he's going to get, or he receives, and struggling to believe it. And yet, he takes a journey, or we watch him take a journey, and unfolds. He does say yes to the God of Israel. He does say yes to this amazing good news about a coming Savior named Jesus. So there's hope for me, and there's hope for you. This morning, I want to walk through this story. So I don't have an outline. I just have a story to tell, and I want to walk through it verse by verse. And I want you to work with me, as I know many of you so often do Sunday after Sunday. You're like sweating with us as preachers. You're working with us digging into God's Word. And so I invite you to do that this morning and turn to page 855 in your pew Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the beginning of Luke and the end of Luke. We're going to look at the story of Zechariah. So Luke chapter 1. Verse 5 begins with this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Stop. It's like a fairy tale. It's like perfect. It's like once upon a time, there was a prince and there was a princess, and then they lived happily ever after. They are good people. He's a priest. He comes from a priestly line. She's the daughter of a priest. She comes from the priestly line. They're good and decent. They walk blamelessly before the Lord. That doesn't mean that they're sinless. doesn't mean that they don't need a Savior, but it does mean they are trying to follow the commandments of the Lord. So in today's terms, it would be almost like they lived in the western suburbs. They had a white picket fence. They had two children who were bound for Wheaton or Harvard. They did really well on their SATs. They were healthy. They went to church. They read their Bibles. They were good people. Everything's going according to the script, the plan. And then verse 7, it hits like a thud but they had no child. 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's not saying it was Elizabeth's fault. It's just saying the fact. She was barren. She hadn't had a child. They both hadn't had a child, and they were advanced in years. I'm going to focus on Zechariah. Elizabeth has her own story, and you're going to actually hear her because we're doing a four-part series this Advent on people who said yes to God. So you're going to hear about other people who said yes to God. Elizabeth's going to be one of them. Mary's going to be one of them. Joseph is going to be one of them. But today we're just focusing on Zechariah's story. So here's this good man. Did he not long for children? Did he not long for the pattering of feet? Did he not long for newborn cries? Did he not long for sons and daughters to raise and to bless, as every priest wants to do? And time is running out. They were both advanced in years. The door is closing. There's just a little crack if there's one at all. That is the wound. We all have a wound. A deep ache. Most of you know. You know. Does anybody here not have one? If you don't, you will have one. Life was going so well. Or life could so, go so well, except for blank. The illness. The marriage that never happened. The death. The depression. The suicide. The loneliness. The divorce, the parents who divorced, or the father or the mother who just were not there. And you say, well, it's not that big a deal, but it is. Franz Wright, spelled W-R-I-G-H-T, is a poet, American poet. He has a poem called Flight. He has this very powerful line. He says, I have, he's talking about his father. He's actually writing to his father who left the family when he was eight years old. In this poem, Flight, he says, Since you left me at eight, I have always been lonely, star far from the person right next to me. This has affected me the rest of my life, he says. I'm lonely, and I can't get close to people. I was talking to a man from the western suburbs this summer. I just met the guy like an hour, and I thought, this guy has, it's the Amer- he's achieved the American dream. He's a corporate executive for a large company. He's making lots of money. He lives in Wheaton. He, he's, he's got the dream. And he pulled me aside, and he said, I don't know why he told me this. I just met him. He said, our daughter, we don't know when she's ever going to come home. She's 24. She lives in another state. She's mentally ill. I don't know if we're going to get the call from the police that she's died or that she's coming home. My wife and I just don't know. There's this ache we live with every day. Who does not know this? How do you manage that? Well, you can take the route of despair. We just give up. Maybe some of you are there right now. Or you escape, work too much, you watch TV too much, or you fantasize too much, or you find some way to escape, or you do something actually pretty good, which is what Zechariah does. He throws himself into engaging in the life of God's people. This is actually a really good thing. For on our terms, he would be like, he throws himself into the life of the church the people of God. 
He serves. He lives. He breathes in it. What a beautiful thing when we, have, when we all have our aches and our incompleteness to come together to receive comfort from the Lord from each other. What a beautiful thing. And so in verses 8 and 9, we see Zechariah. He's serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is a really good thing unless it closes us off to the power of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to see Zechariah eventually has an encounter with the Holy Spirit later in his story. But right now, it's possible. Maybe the duty had become a good duty without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Who knows? But God is up to something remarkable for old Zechariah in this story. So the fact that he was chosen by Lot. Now, I've read different numbers on here, but the numbers I read is that there were 24 divisions. So he's one of 24 divisions of priests. Each division had 750 priests, and so that's 18,000 priests. He is chosen by Lot, one out of 18,000, to do the greatest thing a Jewish priest could do. Go into the Holy of Holies and offer the prayers of God's people in the presence of God. Zachariah's number came up. One out of 18,000. You think that's a freak accident? You think it's random? I don't think so. So he's offering prayers, and verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And the angel identifies himself. He says, my name is Gabriel. Gabriel appears four times in the Bible, twice in the book of Daniel, twice in the book of Luke, always when big stuff is coming down from God. Really big. So he shows up, and Zechariah is, verse 12, troubled, and fear fell upon him. Why was he troubled? Why did fear fall upon him? Well, first of all, angels in the Bible are not chubby and they're not cute. They're like fierce. And the first time we meet an angel in the Bible, they're, at the, they're in paradise with a flaming sword guarding the way so you can't find your way back. Fierce. You don't mess with these people. But maybe there's another reason, and that is that I don't think Zechariah expected to see an angel. He expected to do this wonderful thing, but not an angel. Not for, that was not in the script. That was not in the life plan. So the angel says, Gabriel says, do not be afraid. Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, we're not sure if he's talking about his prayer for a child or he's not sure. Maybe he's talking about the prayers of the people. But anyway, God heard his prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. Now, notice that what pours out of the angel is this litany of extravagant, lavish promises for Zechariah and the people of God and for the world. You know, when I'm, as I'm reading this, as I was reading this this week, it's, it's almost got this kind of like breathless, like the angel doesn't stop to take a breath 
Notice how many times the conjunction and appears. So verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, and he will go, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people appeared. It's almost like breathless. It's too much to take in. I would imagine Zacharias like a man in the desert, baking in the desert, who just wants a little sip of water, just something to refresh me, get me through the day. And the angel is like turning on a fire hose. And Zacharias is like, whoa, that's a little much. That's intense. It's more than he could ever ask or imagine. And he's a part of it. God's calling him into it. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me remind you that these words for Zechariah, these promises, they're going to be fulfilled in your life, but even more. Sometime this week, get your Bible and open up and read Ephesians chapter 1. Because the Apostle Paul does almost a very similar thing. It's, it's br almost a breathless thing. It's, it's one sentence in the original Greek, 13 verses, basically. And he says, you've been blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he chose us before the foundation of the world, and that we should be adopted, and that to the praise of his grace, and in him... Through his blood, the blood of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins according to his riches and grace. And, and, and. Now, this is not health and wealth gospel. This is not every sorrow is going to now be suddenly removed if we just claim it. That's not what this is saying. But what it is saying is that the promises of God are astoundingly, overwhelmingly extravagant and lavish and good. And they are for you. So as you're reading this story, think, you are Zechariah. So there's Zechariah standing there. He's soaking wet. He's been blasted by this heavenly grace. How does he respond? Now, you'd think he might say, wow, really? That is amazing. Thank you so much. I open my heart and I receive this wonderful gift. But he doesn't say that. Verse 18, he says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. On the one hand, he goes, he goes all post-enlightenment on the angel, you know? <laughs> David Hume, hermeneutic of suspicion. Can I see some ID, please? Do you have any angel credentials? What? I mean, now Luke takes great pains to ground his gospel and the book of Acts also, which he, which he also authored, to ground it into historical, investigatable evidence and reliable witnesses. So faith is not opposed to that. It works with that. But at some point, we have this rational brain, rational brain that's just churning like a wood chipper. And any spiritual experience we get, we just chip it to bits with our little rational mind 
destroying it. I've done that. So easy to do that. There's another thing, though, that, that Zechariah does that I think, I, I think is really interesting. Notice what he does. He, he speaks from his wound. He speaks from that deep longing and loss and ache. What does he say? He says, I'm an old man. Notice how he chooses to identify himself. Remember Bishop Stewart has said a number of times, only God gets to decide how I identify myself. Well, Zechariah says, I'm just an old man. That's all I am. And tied up with that is I'm childless and I'm old and I'm over the hill. And he speaks from his wound. Here's the thing. His wound is driving his unbelief rather than his belief healing the wound. Let me say that again because it's the way a lot of us live. His wound is driving his unbelief rather than his belief healing his wound. So he says that, and then you might think the angel is just going to say, you know, Zechariah, I get it, I get it. It's just, it's really hard, and I know you're struggling, and we're just going to cut you some slack here because this is a pretty hard thing to believe. And so instead the angel says, He's really tough on the guy. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I love that line because it's really, to me, it's kind of funny. So Gabriel says, do you know who you're talking to? Do you have any idea who you're talking to? You are talking to an angel. I came from heaven. I was sent from heaven. I was just there, <laughs> like three minutes ago. But we don't have time there, so I don't know. But in your time, I was there like three minutes ago. And now I'm here, and I'm talking to you face to face. And you're like one out of 18,000, remember? Your number came up. You think that's just a freak accident? I was sent to you to share with you this good news. And there's another part to this story, too, of why the angel was so hard on um, Zechariah. So he's a priest, and he should know one of the fundamental stories in all of Judaism, the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, is an almost identical story of what happened to Abraham and Sarah. Another scene exactly like this. And Zechariah should have been thinking, yeah, this sounds kind of crazy. Not every day I'm talking to an angel, but I have that story. I remember that story. I remember that story from Genesis about Abraham, our father. And I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's up to something crazy again. But he doesn't do that. And so the angel says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their times. He gets a nine-month timeout in the chair and is not allowed to speak for nine months. Now, imagine you can't speak for nine months. I was thinking about that. I can't speak for nine months. I can't say what I need. I can't talk on the phone. 
I could still text, but he didn't, Zechariah didn't have that option. But he's not in control. He can't get a point across. He can't win an argument. You can just clumsily like point to, scribble things and point to it. You'd feel, you would feel powerless. You would feel dependent. You would feel like a child, which I think is the point. He's bringing him back to sort of a childlike experience. And what happens in this nine months? Well, we don't know for sure. We're given no information on it. We just know the results of it, what happened, which I'll get to in a minute. And I think based on the results, the results of it, I think there's some really profound things going on in Zechariah in this time, of, this season of silence, as there often is when we enter into the Lord in a season of silence. I think there was a, perhaps a time of self-examination and repentance. St. Augustine said in his confessions, he's praying to God, and he said at one point, right before his conversion, he said, you set me before my face, and I stood naked to myself. You dredged up a heap of all my misery in the sight of my heart. In other words, you're running so fast from your own heart, you're running so fast from your own life, I'm going to slow you down, and I'm going to set you in front of it so you can look at yourself, so you can stand naked to yourself in the sight of your own heart. I think that's part of what happened to Zechariah, but I think also, just based on, again, what happened, what we're going to get to in just a minute, in the silence, it seems like he engaged afresh with the biblical story, with the words of Scripture, with the God of Israel, savoring the sweetness of the Word of God until it burst into life. He's connecting the dots. He's seeing the story. He's seeing how the story leads from here and then to here and then oh, this is the promised Messiah, and oh, this is the Savior that's going to come, and oh my goodness, my son John is going to be part of this, and, and my son John's going to be the forerunner. I think he's beginning to see all of that, and in the depths of silence, he encounters the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Now, how do I say that? Well, turn with me to verse 67, a real turning point of the story. So this is after John the Baptist is born. His mother says his name's going to be John. They ask Zechariah what they're supposed to name him. He scribbles on a pad, name him John. And then in verse 67, it says his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. It's a foretaste of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come upon Zechariah. And, and what happens? What happens is that the Word of God is made active and real and alive now. I got this from our bishop as well. That prophecy, one aspect of prophecy is a, the Word of God becoming active now. So look at, look at some of these verses with me. So, so for instance, <clears throat> verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has re- visited and redeemed his people. He's talking about past events in the history of Israel, but he's also talking about now. God has visited my life now. He's visiting his people. Verse verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This Messiah is going to come. He's going to deliver from oppression and injustice, and it's going to start now. Verse 77, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. When was forgiveness of sins? Well, on the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial system, but it's also, it's going to happen now. Why? Because the Savior is visiting us. Now, does that mean that everything is going to be light now? Everything is going to turn from darkness to the light immediately? Every ache is going to be healed? Every longing is going to be met? No, that's not what this means. But look at verse 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That's a reference to what is almost the last verse in the Christian Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which talks about the Son of Righteousness, the Messiah, rising with healing in his wings, like the sunrise. The almost last verse of the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is pointing to Messiah, and it's happening now. He is rising like the sun now to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I don't know if you've ever been camping, and it's a really bad night, and it storms, or maybe you're just in your house, and it's a bad night, and it's a thunderstorm, and you don't sleep well, and you wake up, and you're a little disoriented, and things have not gone well, but then the clouds begin to part, the sun begins to rise, and you say to yourself, there's a new day dawning. This is going to be a better day. That's what Zechariah says is the coming of the Messiah. The sunrise, the, the sun of righteousness is rising with healing in his wings. And Jesus says, I am the bright new morning star. I am that person. What does this mean for you and for me? I remember when I was 16 years old, I was raised in a religious home, but we, we went to church every Sunday, but it really didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. I'd never read my Bible. I never listened to the scripture readings. It just never connected with my life. And I remember when I was 16 years old, I got a copy of the, the Bible and kind of a new, fresh translation, and I started reading the Gospel of John, and I ran into the person of Jesus, and I thought, oh, that's who they're talking about on Sunday mornings when I go to church. It's like, he's amazing. He's intriguing. He's fascinating. He's not who I expected him to be. I'd like to get to know this guy. And then I thought, well, but he lived 2,000 years ago. You know, what is that? How do I connect with that? Well, I came to learn that Jesus is still alive and that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what God said then, he's still speaking now, and he's speaking it into my heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's the promise to you. When you open your Bibles, you read a promise of God. You read Luke 1 or you read Ephesians one, or you read Malachi 4, the Lord is speaking to you. Those promises are for you. They happen now for you. How can you begin Advent this year? Let me give you two pastoral words this morning, two pastoral exhortations. First, maybe this Advent, you will begin Advent by repenting of your unbelief. Now, I said earlier that that's the biggest struggle in my life. It might be tempting to think, well, that's really a minor character flaw. No, it's not. 
It undermines the whole infrastructure of faith, this unbelief. It yanks it out from underneath. So maybe this morning you need to repent of some hardness of heart. I'm not talking about honest intellectual doubts and questions. I'm talking about a a settledness in your heart that you have decided, I am just not going to believe. I just got too many hurts, or I got too many aches, or I just just am not going to believe, or I'm just not going to believe that. And you say, I've never seen an angel before. Maybe if an angel showed up. And and maybe the Lord would say to you this morning, well, but you got the Word of God. You got the people of God. You've seen people who actually live the Christian life, and they live saintly lives, and you know them. You've seen your life. You have the Lord's table. You have Jesus himself saying, my body and my, my blood given for you. Take and eat. First, you might need to just say, Lord Jesus, I confess my unbelief. There's an undercurrent of unbelief. And, and I want to confess, and I want to take responsibility for it and not just say I'm a victim of it. I want to repent of it. Secondly, as we're going to talk about through this season, you can say yes to Jesus. And, and let me give you a really practical way that's really helpful for me. Someone has called this the little way, the little way of following Jesus. Just, Jesus said, I can work with a mustard seed of faith. You don't have to bring me a boulder. Bring me your mustard seed. But then just keep bringing the, me that mustard seed over and over and over again every day, every hour for the rest of your life. Bring me that mustard seed. So today, maybe you want to tell Jesus, Jesus, take my mustard seed. But you have, see, you have to give it to him. You can't just hold it in your own hands. You have to say, Jesus, take this mustard seed and multiply this mustard seed and do something with this mustard seed. So take that mustard seed and say yes to Jesus when you come to the Lord's table. Say yes to Jesus as Lord. Say yes to Jesus as your Savior. Say yes to Jesus as the one who can forgive your sins. Say yes to Jesus as the one who can give you a new start in life. Say yes to Jesus tomorrow when you go to work or tomorrow when you go to home. Say yes to Jesus in your marriage. Say yes to Jesus in your singleness. Say yes to Jesus when you're tempted this week and you're tempted to sin. Say yes to Jesus when you're trying to serve him. Say yes to Jesus when you're trying to share the gospel or love someone that's hard to love. Say yes to Jesus. And then keep saying yes every moment, every hour, every day, every year for the rest of your life. Take your mustard seed and bring that mustard seed to him and say yes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.